the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. And this is a great conversation. I'm so excited that you tuned in today. Today, I sit down with actor Terry Crews. You probably know him from everything like Guardians of the Galaxy, where he plays Centurion Talmeric, to uh, America's Got Talent, to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to Everybody Hates Chris, where he played the father of Chris Rock. And well, you know him from the old Spice commercials too, right? So Terry Crews is going to talk about his life. Uh, he has a fascinating book called Tough. But we're going to talk about religion gone bad. Uh, he actually emerged as a Christian out of some really bad experiences that he had growing up and in college. And he talks about why Hollywood doesn't care if you lose your family, shame, redemption, and overcoming secret addictions. It's a powerful conversation. And when you're done with it, you'll probably be like me and wish that you had his voice. What a voice. What a voice. And man, is that guy ever built too? Like talk about a guy who stays in shape. Today's episode is brought to you by He Gets Us. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry to sign up to be part of the largest faith campaign in history. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. And by Tithely, you can get access to free resources that are exclusive to you as a listener of this podcast. They'll help you grow generosity at your church. Go to increasegenerosity.com. That's increasegenerosity.com. So Terry Crews is an actor, a television host, a former American football linebacker. He played Julius Rock on the sitcom Everybody Hates Chris and portrayed Terry Jeffords on the hit TV show Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's been in many movies, including films by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Guardians of the Galaxy and in many more. And in his book, Tough, he examines areas of life where he desperately sought control. A lot of us as leaders, we're control freaks, so listen up. Where he found it was in masculinity, but ended up with shame, sex, experiences with racism, and in relationships. And so we talk about all of those things and so much more. It's a fascinating conversation, and Terry is pretty transparent. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Well, by now, you may have seen an ad or heard about He Gets Us. It's the national ad campaign that's changing perceptions of Jesus, and they're playing it online, on TV, everywhere. And you're asking yourself probably, well, what's it all about? Is it a good thing? Can I get involved? You have never seen a campaign like this. He Gets Us is backed by months of in-depth research and was created to help people meet and relate to the real Jesus of the Bible, not some stereotype that culture made up. It's got a budget in excess of $100 million, thanks to Kingdom Investors. And what really makes this different is how people are responding to the campaign and they're getting connected with local churches. With early success, like 31 million views on YouTube, 600,000 social media interactions, plus nearly a half a million people visiting the He Gets Us website, you probably want to get your church plugged in ASAP. So what you can do, if you want to meet some of the people who are responding to the campaign and start a conversation with them, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. If you do that, here's what you'll get. You'll get coaching and certification that empowers your leaders and volunteers, Bible study resources and conversation guides to talk with people who are saying, you know what, I'm interested in the real Jesus, and info on how your church can connect with the people who respond to the campaign. 
There are literally millions of people looking for answers. So if you want to help them find it, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry and get your church involved today. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. And today's episode is brought to you by Tithely. So pastors, you know that the health of your church largely relies on the generosity of your members, but... Helping your church to learn the importance of generosity isn't all that simple, right? So Tidely is offering a free tool that is going to help you increase generosity through digital giving. And now they put a free resource together that you can only get by listening to this podcast. So here's what it includes. It's a no-cost, easy-to-download kit that has a five-step plan for building a culture of recurring generosity and giving at your church a guide for fundraising for the remainder of 2022, a bumper video for a sermon on generosity, and more. So if you're interested, it's for listeners of this podcast only. Go to increasedgenerosity.com. That's increasedgenerosity.com. And if you want to help disciple your people in stewardship and you want to raise more money for ministry, do it today. Go to increasedgenerosity.com. So now my conversation with Terry Crews. Terry, it's a thrill to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Hi, Terry. How you doing? Good, good. Doing fantastic. So you have done so much in your life. You're an actor, you know, both TV and movies. That crossover wasn't always easy, but you seem to be able to go very fluidly between both. Uh, you've hosted game shows, play in the NFL, uh, multiple seasons, multiple teams. You've written a book, and you're also an exceptional artist, I'm just curious, what brings you the most joy in all of that? Oh, wow. Um, That's like asking me if I have a favorite child. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Actually, it's it's wild because, uh, you know, the reality is I, you know, when I do things, I I go into them letting everyone know that I'm not giving up the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, It was really, when I signed on to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, you know, they were, the NBC tended to be really, you know, they, they were dogged about keeping everyone's rights for everything. And I was like, hey, look, you know, I work a lot. I do a lot of different things. And if I'm going to do this show, you're going to have to accept that because I there's no way I can be happy just doing one thing. And they were with it. Um, where I had seen on other shows, even with the network, that people were like, man, they got my rights and they won't let me do this and won't let me do that. But I I went in with that understanding uh, that, hey, I want to try other things. I want to host. I want to, you know, I'm an artist. Uh, I design furniture. Um, I do, you know, I, there's so many things that I want to do. And I, I usually have to go into that with every new venture or with every new agreement or relationship I let everybody know that, hey, you know, Terry Crews is a multi-hyphenate. You know what I mean? Um, I have so many different personalities and I love them all. You know, I, I, there's no one that stands above the other because there's, it's it's so wild because even when I, I wrote my book, um, there was an intersectionality from one thing to the next. Like one thing tips off another thing that tips off another thing. And if you pull off, if you if you take out one of those things, like you take out art, uh, all of a sudden the whole thing just starts to fall down. You know what I mean? For mm-hmm. me, and uh, it, it it's so. Let me tell you, that was the only way to live for me. And and I, I would easily easily be making no money, but doing everything I want to do. Hmm. 
Did you? Yeah, because, you know, your your book, Tough, which, by the way, if anybody hasn't read it yet, I would encourage the audio book. You did an unbelievable job oh, delivering you. that. I thought it was fantastic. But goes into your childhood. It's sort of an autobiography. But, you know, you did have various interests. You were interested in art at the same time as football and then kind of got your break in, in TV. And then, well, I guess the first was movies, actually. Yeah. Right? Was, was the first a Schwarzenegger film? What was you know what? Actually, in fact, it was TV first. Um, it was TV first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I what was incredible was that I never wanted to be an actor <laughs> at all. <laughs> I mean, it's so crazy. My wife was the musical theater major and the whole thing, and she was like, so I had Broadway dreams and the whole deal. My dream was to be a creator, to be behind the scenes. Like once I saw Star Wars in 1977. I thought, oh, man, if I could be a director or I would have been super happy just working at Industrial Light and Magic, working on special effects and being a creator like that way. And but I just wanted to be involved behind the scenes. That was my whole intent. And uh, I just kept getting I was doing security in L.A. after playing football and the whole thing. And people just kept coming up to me saying, man, you got a great look. You should have to try this acting thing. And I was like, whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. it, just, it did not interest me at all. And I resisted it. And then uh, finally there was a guy that I really trusted. Um, you know, he was a really cool dude. He was a police officer who worked with Billy Blanks at the time. And that was the Ty Bo guy. I don't know if you remember Ty Bo. That was really... And he yeah. was uh, he was a really cool guy that I, I was meeting. I met in front of this um, this bar that I was bouncing at, and he said, "Hey man, I have this opportunity. You know, you got to try it. It's a TV show called Battle Dome that Billy Blanks is doing. The he's he's basically um, advisor for." But they're looking for new guys and you would be great. And I was like, oh, boy, here we go again. But he was a nice guy. Like, I really trusted mm -hmm. him and I really liked him. So I went to my wife and I was like, should I, you know, should I finally try this? And she was like, what else do you got? You're doing security. I mean, it can't <laughs> hurt. You know what I mean? I was like, all right. People just keep saying this. And man, the first thing I ever auditioned for, I went down to Santa Monica. They put us through this obstacle course and then tried to see our acting ability. And we were all big, like wrestlers and the whole thing. And I got the job. <laughs> I got the job. And I was like, all of a sudden, I was on TV. It was a late night show. It was American Gladiators on steroids. When I say <laughs> that, it was, I played this character named T Money, who had a gold chain and old thing, but they would put me in this cage and set the ends on fire. And I would get in the cage and they would rotate the cage and I would face three contestants one at a time and they would try to pull me out of the cage. And it was crazy. I was getting bloodied every show and the whole thing, but it was easier than the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I found my calling. I, it was really... Amazing. I, I can't tell you, Carrie, how nervous I was because I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. But I also had no way back. Like, here was an opportunity because I was already at rock bottom. So it was it was really only one way out was the light that you saw at the end of the tunnel. You know what I mean? And that mm -hmm. was it. 
And little did I know it would lead to over 25 years in entertainment. I didn't know that. And then, and then there, came, there came the Schwarzenegger opportunity because they saw me on that show and gave me the opportunity to, uh, to audition as a heavy on the Schwarzenegger movie. And I got that. That was the first <laughs> movie audition I ever did. It was insane. I was turning around like, wow, this, this Hollywood is easy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got crushed over the next four or five years. You know what I mean? Ended up losing my house, um, oh. totally losing perspective on so many things. It was it, that, you know, there is an, um, it's like an, an obstacle that comes right along with early success. Mm. You know, and there's a lot of directions we could go and uh, you're very generous with your time for this, but let me, let me pick up here. Um, you mentioned the NFL and I want to ask you about your, your physical disciplines too, because I'm always interested in sort of the, the story behind what made the Terry Crews we know today, whether people know you from the movies or Brooklyn nine, nine, or, you know, everybody hates Chris or whether they know you from America's got talent, right. Where you've been for the last few years. Um, but you call in your book, you call, if I got this quote, right, the NFL is prison with money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've never heard that before. <laughs> what was what was your take on the NFL? Because you played with six, seven teams, did you not? Yes, um, mm -hmm. you have to understand. You know, the thing about the NFL is it's probably the most competitive out of all the sports. Um, you know, it's probably the most competitive physically. Uh, when I say you're literally trying to take people to the ground physically by their necks, yes, you are. It's a little different than the Olympics or whatever. I would I would say you know even with wrestling, it's 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 kind of there's a sport to it, there's an art to it, the whole thing, you know. But football, it's all about aggression and it's about anger, and it also you know is it was one of the Many, it was one of the few ways out of the inner city for most young black, you know, young, young black men. And you, you have to understand, it was kind of like football was expected in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it was it was a thing where any big guy, it's almost as, as if some, if there was a black guy coming up in the city who all of a sudden was 6'9", instantly he's supposed to go to the NBA. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. like... You're 6'9", and if you're like, I want to be a doctor, they'd be like, what are you doing? Don't play in the NBA first, you know, um, with it, with a very athletic man, like, you know, a kid such as me, football was the way out of Flint, Michigan for me, even though I actually didn't like football that much. I'll be honest with you. Um, I was an artist. I loved to paint and draw, and I had visions of filmmaking and all this stuff, but the problem is, is that, you know, the term starving artist was an actual true, you know, definition of what that career was. Um, mm -hmm. You weren't going to make any money and you weren't going to go out and do anything. And, and then uh, on top of that, I didn't really see a lot of people from my city being very successful at art. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, what I would do is do my art and they would put it on screen, you know, they would make screen printed T-shirts out of it. And, you know, I'd get 25 bucks. I mean, that's the, that was the extent of like how I saw art actually making money. I didn't see myself as like, oh, man, this painting going for $10,000, $20,000. I mean, that, that was just like, that's not going to happen. But football was accessible. It was a way to go. 
I had the the strength to do it. And I said, okay, this is going to be my way out of Flint, Michigan. Now you have to understand too, Flint, Michigan was going through an amazing upheaval, horrible upheaval. I mean, uh, the, the demise of the auto industry, it was, everything was collapsing around us. Um, right after the gas crisis, all through the eighties, you know, General Motors went from being the number one corporation in the world to just barely hanging on, you know? Um, and then there was all this competition from all the other, uh, car companies. And, and then at the same time, there was the rise of the crack epidemic, which yeah. man, it definitely, I mean, people went right from getting laid off from the factory into the drug game. Yeah. which really exacerbated this whole like demise of the city. And I watched it and it's still been going through it. I mean, the water mm-hmm. crisis and all this stuff, it's, it's literally a shell of what it was. All of my memories um, in Flint, Michigan are gone. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't have, a, there's not a standing high school. The places I used to go don't stand anymore. The movie theaters are all done and, and hollowed out. They're just fields of grass. And it's kind of like having your memory wiped out, you know? But I knew I had to get out. I knew when, because I felt this happening. Hmm. And football was the way to do it. Um, and I, I actually went to a school that wasn't very good at football. So I had to walk on. And I begged my parents to squeeze together enough money for me to get to get there. I, I actually had an art scholarship, a small art scholarship, uh, five hundred dollars. But see, back in you know nineteen eighty six, you could go to school for three thousand dollars. <laughs> so that's a that's a meaningful yeah. amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, five hundred dollars was a lot of money back then. Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible. You can actually work and go to school back in 1986. Uh, right now, you know, $100,000 is like, how is a kid going to do that? Um, you can't work and go to school at the same time. So uh, what I did, took out a couple of loans, got me a, a scholarship, and I was able to get in. And I walked on to the football team in hopes of earning this scholarship. And the first year, I didn't get it. And Beg my mother one more time. I have to say I was very, very selfish because I was like, you got to put this on me. And they could not afford it. No, Mm -hmm. my brother, sister, everybody went without. And I finally got my scholarship and I was off to the races and worked that way, worked all the way up through, you know, college and got myself into the NFL, which was a minor miracle. I was across the river from you around that same time. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, right across Uh, the river from Detroit. So uh, always cared about Detroit. And you're right. I mean, there are whole parts of the city that are just field now. And they just tore down blocks and blocks and square miles of Detroit and Flint and, you know, Pontiac and places like that, that, that were just so challenging. Now, I want to talk about a little bit about your childhood and the things that yeah. drove you, because you've always been a very physical guy and yet a very sensitive guy, right? Sensitive in art, but very physical. And I'm paraphrasing here from your book, but you say a lot of your life has been dealing with shame, yeah. judging others, and managing your anger. Can you unpack, because I think a lot of us, we get driven into leadership. Most of us, I didn't plan on being here in life. And I look at my younger leadership and I realize, oh, some of that, I was working out some of the issues from my childhood. 
Yeah. And you had a, you do a, a, a beautiful, I don't want to say beautiful because it wasn't beautiful, but you do a beautiful job describing a really painful childhood that you yeah. grew up in. Carrie, so. let me tell you, man, it was brutal. Um, yeah, on top of all the things that were happening outside of my house, mm. um, all the tremendous upheaval inside of the house, it was worse. Um, mm. My father was extremely abusive. I mean, one of my earliest memories is my father knocking my mother out, um, and he would do it on the regular. It was, it was something that you know. I actually wet the bed till I was 14 years old because we used to wake up into screaming and crying and glass breaking and we never felt secure. I, I, I don't ever remember feeling like I knew what the what the next day was going to be like. You know, it was always on edge. I was always nervous and scared. I spent so much time afraid and it 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 became part of my psyche. You know, um, just look out, watch out. Because again, it, when you went out, there were drug dealers, gang members. Um, the city was changing so fast that it was you had to fear out there. And then to come home and be afraid of, you know, your father being angry. And, you know, and, and on top of that, my mother was uh, addicted to religion. Um, mm. We went to a, we went to a very, very, uh, strict church, which was the Church of God in Christ, which was Pentecostal, but it was extremely prohibitive. I mean, you know, you couldn't go to the movies. I couldn't watch. Um, I couldn't listen to secular music, couldn't dance, couldn't uh, play sports, couldn't do anything that I actually ended up doing with my whole life. Um, we couldn't do, you know, and it was literally, when you talk about shame, uh, Carrie, it was Everything was, oh my God, you're going to go to hell. Hmm. And the everything that you it was presented to me is, you know, why are you thinking that? If you're thinking that, you're going to go to hell. Why did you do that? Uh, we, uh, you know, our our wiring were that was that we were bad people. Um, and if you didn't pray enough, if you didn't seek God enough, if you, mm. you, there was always more you could do, but you're never going to get there. Like you'll never really be enough. So hustle, hustle, hustle. And hopefully maybe just like Indiana Jones, you'll scoop underneath that rock and pat right when that door closes, you'll make it into heaven. If mm. God sees you fit enough. So there was something that you, you this, this grace, that you had to earn every day. And it was exhausting. Uh, it was an exhausting because of my mother was underneath it. And we spent most of our time in the church. That was the whole hub of our lives. But at the same time, there were, you know, my father was an alcoholic and he also ran the streets. So he knew a lot more about what was going on with our church than my mother did. Uh, and our, the pastor of the church that I went to was actually, his, his name was Roger L. Jones. He actually wrote a book about his whole experiences, but he was actually, um, he had affairs in the church. He, hmm. you know, sold crack right out of the pulpit, wow. used crack in the pulpit, um, would come to church high. Uh, and, you know, everyone did everything he said. Um, and he was, you know, and the word was touch not mine anointed. You know, and here I am as a young man, 
just always, always, you know, uh, as, so first of all, as a child of an alcoholic, I became a pleaser. I became this mm-hmm. guy who was just wanted peace, man. I was like, okay, you know, whatever, whatever my father wants, you want a beer, you want whatever you want to do. I just got to do it. But then also this religious side where, okay, I'll go to church. I'll be a good boy. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll sing in the choir. Anytime anybody wanted to, you know, recite all the books of the Bible, I was right there to do that. I said, I got to be the best kid that ever was. But I also knew one day, you know, that I may have to kill my father. And I had the desire to be strong, like physically, because I was scared. I was scared all the time. The The whole desire to get strength came from the insecurity that I had, that, that constant fear of what if somebody jumps me? What if my father attacks me? What if I go outside and get beat up? What if I just never, and then at the same time, what was even crazier, there was a there was a, a serial killer going around in the, D- the Detroit area called the Oakland Child Killer. And he oh. would specifically, you know, like pinpoint boys and he would kill them and dress them up and set them in the snow. And this we had assemblies about it when I was a kid, you know, like I can't tell you how how up how just fear was everywhere. Everyone was I was scared, everyone was scared, everybody in the church was scared. And, you know, and then we had, there was talk of the rapture and the fact that, you know, if you don't, if you get caught and you're not right, um, you know, they would give us books, you know, about the rapture where if you were left behind, um, you know, you you would get your tongue cut out and you have to watch your family members get killed. And so you're talking about a five, six-year-old boy who's just like panicked. Like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, I never one of my biggest memories, earliest memories is, um, you know, we were in church and, you know, these church services were like four to five hours long every day, <laughs> like every time we went. And every one day I went to sleep and I and usually I would get a pinch if I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. But this time I didn't get pinched. I fell asleep and I woke up and no one was in the sanctuary. And I flipped out. I said, oh, my God, the raptures come like and I, I, man, I'll never forget this, Carrie. I ran around this church in tears, like God, no, now I'm gonna have to get, I'm gonna get hacked, my arms hacked off in the streets, and people are gonna die, and mm. I gotta watch people get killed, and ah, and I was just, I was screaming, I was beyond, beyond myself. I ran, I heard some noise in the basement, and what happened is church had ended, and everyone went downstairs to eat. <laughs> And my mother was like, what is the problem? But see, this is just one of the examples. This is why it was so, because I could remember it so distinctly of, oh, my God, like, I'm not safe. I'm never Mm -hmm. safe. And I never, ever did. And so my attempt to be strong was an attempt to have some sort of control over my own safety. And uh, it was an it was a crazy, crazy life. And I mean, everything you did, like if you, I felt guilty about listening to secular music, about actually liking it. You know what I mean? And what was so strange is that we couldn't go to the movies, but we would watch the movies when they came on TV. And every and I had tons of questions about that. And I was like, but okay, if we can't go to the movie, why can't we watch this? And they would be like, shut up. <laughs> you know, I, I had way too many questions, you know, and, and yeah. you, even now, my, all the questions that I, br- that I usually bring up get me in trouble still. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's I, I've had nothing but questions because I'm like, why are we doing it like this? And it's like, hey, you're ruining, you know, don't, don't, <laughs> don't ask too many questions, Terry, you know. Um, but I had nothing but questions. So I learned to just be quiet. I learned because <sighs> after you get shut up, you know, 50 million times, and it was like, stop it, just do because I said so. That was usually Right. everyone's response from the people in the church to my mother, to my father, to the gang members. It was, you can't go by here. Cause we said, you said you can't. And, you know, so my art was my escape. Like art mm. was really where I would get in and just be by myself with pencils and crayons, colored pencils. And I just go at it. I create my, my own world. And, um, I used to you know, hear what kids were talking about in movies and stuff that they'd seen that I wish I could have went to see. And I would go home and draw them. And I would draw what I thought the movie was. And it actually helped my creativity, although very sadly. Um, but that was that when I became a teenager, it, it started to all hit me hard that I needed to get first out of my parents' house and then I needed to get out of Flint, Michigan. Yeah. I'm surprised you have anything to do with faith today, but you do, right? Yes. Like, which you know, Jerry. Yeah. This is this is what's so what I think, you know, because first of all, I I have seen where the problem was people. Hmm. The problem was not God. The problem was not the Bible. The problem was not the you know. This 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 thing about loving each other. The problem was not Jesus; it was people. And then I started to look at how Jesus never. He didn't really call out the Gentiles. He always called out his own. Mm. You know what I mean? It was a, he was always mm -hmm. like, "Hey, wait a minute." You know, it, when I look at the Pharisees, it just reminded me of the church I went to. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, there were there were people who would literally put a TV in their windowsill. And watch TV in the windowsill because the uh, the back of the win the, the TV was outside of their house, and they would go around telling people, "I don't have a TV in my house." <laughs> and you know, it, it reminds you of, of when Jesus was talking about washing the the outside of the cup and the inside yeah. is filthy. You know what I mean? And it was all these games and tricks and different things that people would try to catch you on. And I was like, mm, and I, but I was always suspicious of this. Like hmm. in my heart, I always, I felt, and I knew I didn't create myself. See, yeah. that was, that was my thing. Like, you know, at the bare bottom, bare basic minimum, I'm like, hmm, there's something bigger than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's for real. Like there's something, I, I didn't make any of this. I didn't make me. I didn't make this world. I didn't. So something created this because uh, let me tell you, I came about it with the mindset of an artist, uh, as a designer, mm. as there was a plan. You could see plans. You could see things organized in certain ways. And I said, wait a minute. So maybe the problem's us. <laughs> maybe people are putting, now I noticed there were so many people putting too many things in on it. And all the extras and all the stacking of all these other things. I'm like, wait a minute, man. You you know, you got to understand this too, Carrie, that in in the church that I went to, there was a phrase that will always be used. 
And they would come up to you and be like, you know, God is telling me that you need to, and then they go into a nice little list, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you started anything what God is telling me, well, it, 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 you, you can't refute it. And especially to a young man, because I'm a kid. So it was like, God's telling me that you need to, da, 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 da. And, and, and so you're supposed to take all this stuff as law. But then I started to realize, again, especially as a teenager, I was like, you know what? God didn't tell you that. <laughs> there were yeah. a moment where I was like, wait a minute. You know, because I'll never forget a pa- another pastor that I went to. He said, God's telling me that football is evil because you're trying to hurt people. Now, basketball, however, is great because we play it every Friday night. And I went, no. No. And again, here I am, 16 years old, and these are adults telling me that this is the rules. And I'm going, but that's not true. Mm. It's obvious it's not true. Um, so I started to realize that the problem was not was not God. Mm. And the problem was always what people added and the things that they took away and the things that they they would say and reveal. And the things that they would, would you know, literally tell you that God's saying, interpolated through him. I'm like, you know, why can't God just tell me? <laughs> you know, that was one of my things. I was like, why does God need you? You know, yeah, I, mean, I, had, yeah. I always had these questions, you know, and I had a lot of questions. Again, and I would get shut up because I said so. <laughs> uh, and, and I finally stopped asking and just started to live and just said, mm, I'm just going to. I know God is there and I know he's because another thing too, you got to understand growing up in Flint, Michigan, there were so many things that, uh, that were negative, that were crazy that I missed that I could see, um, I could feel protection. Hmm. I could, I know there were things that there were voices that I listened to that I knew were, guiding me the right way, even in the midst of all that darkness, you know, um, I was comforted because I was, I was seeking it, mm. you know what I mean? And that's where I said, man, this is real, but I don't, I just don't want to get things mixed up. And, and let me tell you, I was actually in more than one church that, you know, I had to end up leaving simply because the, the things got really cons- misconstrued and, and very, very, you know, culty, I would say, because the leader was great. And all the people start out with great intentions, yeah. the greatest intentions. But then a lot of things get really, really twisted. Um, and that happens everywhere. That happens in sports. It happens in Hollywood. It happens in politics. I mean, people have the greatest intentions. And then you turn around and it's like, uh-oh, why, where did you miss that? And I'm going to tell you, no more is that, nowhere is that more true than in my own life and in my own family. And the things that I started out with these intentions and then turned around, and I was in a really, really wrong place. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing that um, because I think you're describing a version. Yours sounds like an extreme version of a childhood a lot of listeners can relate to. You know, I grew up with the idea that movies were bad. And now mm. my parents watch movies. It's fine. Yeah. You know, they're still alive. We watch movies. Uh, that whole kind of legalistic, conservative 
bent where this was okay, but that wasn't. And the hypocrisy that even as a kid, you could see in some of the people in your church. And, you know, I feel like my adult life has been trying to take the good of my childhood. I had a much more secure childhood, it sounds like, than you did, Terry. But, um, but also then trying to, you know, my, my leadership is a reaction to that. I would never, that's one thing I decided early on in my ministry. I would never say God told me to build this or launch this. It's like, I prayed about it. I think he's directing it. But, you know, if this thing falls apart, give me the blame. Like, I'll yeah. take this one. Make it yeah. fall on me. I, you know, let's get into your personal story a little bit more. Because, you know, when you grow up and you you don't even call your parents mom and dad, that's a story for another day, but it's Big Terry yeah. and Trish, right? And yeah. there's a whole story behind that. And um, you were estranged for a little while from both of them. And you tell that story toward the end of your book, etc. cetera. Uh, but a home of abuse, your dad abused in one way, your mom abused in another Um you know, not safe on the street. Then all of a sudden you fall in love, you start your own family, you start your own career. How did those, how did that childhood start to show up dysfunctionally in your adulthood? Wow. Yeah, man. Um, First of all, one thing that I was exposed to very, very young, probably about nine or 10 years old was pornography. Yeah. And, you know, when you're in a religious household, um, sex was not talked about. Mm. It was taboo. It was the, you know, it was something that was, you know, you you hushed about it and you didn't say anything about it. And and if you did, it was like, what are you doing it? You know, it was like, no, no, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> no. uh, I don't even know what oh, it is. How, how, do, how oh, am I doing my, it? <laughs> no, it's, it, it, first of all, it was viewed as bad. Like yeah. it, it's not healthy. It's bad. And, and don't even think about it. You know, and so I was never really explained to me. And then once uh, I went, I was taking flute lessons and I discovered a whole chest of pornography when I was nine years old at my at my uncle's house while he was teaching me how to play flute. But he would leave and I'd wait to get picked up. And, you know, he wasn't a Christian. He was just living his life. In fact, he lived most of his life high. So he would smoke and do all this stuff. But he had a bunch of pornography there. And. Man, I my I don't I have to say because of the early how early it came into my life that it changed my wiring mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um because that that's actually abusive. I mean, when you look at people who try to groom kids, whatever, the first thing they do is show them pornography. Mm-hmm. Um and the thing is is that you can really change the makeup of someone's brain by seeing it too early. And the thing is, is that, you know, and there's people who in the world who always say, you know, hey, man, you know, pornography is, is cool as an adult and the whole thing. But I don't know anybody who ever encountered pornography as an adult. I don't know. I, I mean, every every kid, you see it as a kid and it affects you immediately. And especially now, I mean, I look at what people see on their phones or whatever. But back then. It was just uh, magazines. And let me tell you, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I was hooked. And then when cable came in and I found a way to, to jimmy the cable box so I could watch porn. And you got to understand, here I am. This, this, And I saw myself as this card-carrying Christian young man. 
but I could not get this thing out of my life. And I mean, it, I would pray, pray to God, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And man, I'll go right back. And that shame cycle is what I would like to call it, would just keep spinning, man, because you you do it and you feel bad. And then in order to feel better, you do it again. And it doesn't stop. And the shame just keeps going. And then you just accept it. You just say, I'm just flawed. I'm just broken, messed up. And if I'm, I'll be lucky to get into heaven because I can't stop this. Because for one, it was a secret. I was not telling anybody. Uh, no one would know. And I'll be honest, anybody in my world didn't even want to hear it if I wanted to talk about it. You know, it was it was that kind of thing. Like, hey, man, you better not be doing that. I don't even want to hear it. So here I am, you know, a young man. I married this beautiful Christian woman who, Rebecca, who I met, I literally met in church. She was, she was a music minister at our church in Kalamazoo. And here I think my pornography addiction is over. It's done. I have a real woman now. That's finished. Thank you, God. I'll take it from here. <laughs> you know? uh, and then as soon as the argument happened, oh, my God. Uh-oh. I went right back. Right back. But it still was my secret. And it was my secret. I called it my dirty little secret. For years and years and years, and through 20 years of our marriage. And it was something that even once I became a an actor, I mean, I went through all through the NFL and and I and what was so wild is that as the things started to develop, you know, I used to go to bookstores and do all this stuff and sneak around. And and then when the internet hit, I was like, oh no, like it's in the house. It was a little bit like that move from magazines to cable. And so the internet's there and I'm like, oh man, and I can't get this thing out of my life, right? So, but what happened is as I got out of NFL and went and became an actor and the whole thing, I also had imposter syndrome. So pornography was a thing that is just like alcohol or just like any other thing where it numbs your pain. It numbs, it just numbs you. It, it's, it's not... It's something that will take you out of your your problems for the moment. And what happened was I, as an actor, young actor, I was so intimidated, so feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in Vancouver all by myself, the whole thing. I actually went to a massage parlor and cheated on my wife. And I had been on a binge of watching porn and the whole thing. And I couldn't believe it was like the worst thing I could ever imagine. Like I said, I would never do these things, but it's inevitable when you bring this stuff into your life and in your head, you act out. That's just, you know, you are the, you start to accumulate. If you accumulate good things, you you do good things. But if you start accumulating a lot of bad things, bad things come out. Mm. And I, I vowed, I would never tell my wife, I vowed. I would never, it was going to be my secret for, for life. I'm going to, to my deathbed with this thing. And 20, I mean, literally from 1999 all the way to 2010. And, but what's happening is, you know, slowly but surely I'm, my marriage is separating. You start to, you know, these, these things, the pornography will always put a brick between my, the relationship between my wife and I. And the thing is, is the thing I need was intimacy. 
And with intimacy, it's when you see someone, you know everything about them, and you love them anyway. Yeah. But the problem is with the thing that I needed, I was always, I would never let my wife see me as I truly was. <laughs> so it became a bigger brick. And it was always like to cover up the tracks. One lie would turn into another that would turn into another. And mind you, I went to church. I be, I called myself a Christian. I was this guy who went to church every Sunday and prayed. and But I asked forgiveness every time I did it. But it was, I couldn't break it. And man, finally, my wife, it, it, she confronted me. I was in New York. She was in LA. We were on the phone. And she just, she said, it, it came to this. She said, what is it I don't know about you, Terry Crews? Mm. And it snapped. Like, I was tired of the whole thing. And it was like, oh, and I told her. I told her about pornography. I told her about the, the massage parlor. I told her about all this stuff. And see, and then, you know, what's so crazy is that I was like, hey, see, you know, now I told and now, all right, I get my reward and you're, you're you know, now you have to stay with me. And I was, she's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. What are you talking about? Like, I don't even know you. Hmm. And I realized that there was no way I mean, I had been giving her a picture of what Terry Crews is, this image, and that was what she was married to. Hmm. Dude, it was over. Whole, my marriage was over. My life was over. And I carry, this is another thing. Yeah. I was extremely successful. Mm-hmm. You got to understand, like, the yeah, world. Where were you in your career care. at that point, Terry? 2010? Oh, oh, man. You mean, I mean, the money was flowing, the opportunities, the. You know, the shows, the love, the fame. I mean, I had no shortage of people telling me how great I was. And here was my wife, the most important person in my whole life, was like, I don't want anything to do with you. Why? And Hollywood doesn't care if you lose your family. They just don't. It's like, okay, now well, we can put you in three more movies. You don't have to go home. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'll just go from one set to the next. You know what I mean? And... So that wasn't a problem. But the problem was, is that I was like, but who am I? Mm. Like, and, and the thing is, and then I then I flipped, Carrie. It was yeah. kind of a weird, weird way to do it. I was like, hey, you know what? Fine. I'll let her go. I don't need her. I'll, I'll just find another woman. This is kind of like the first divorce. This is how it works in Hollywood. You know, everybody gets their first divorce. So it was no big deal. And then I heard myself talking like that. Wow. And then I went, who is that? I was like, that's that's not even who I claim to be. Because you understand, all these years I've been claiming to be this guy who loves his wife, who loves his family. And I'm there, I'm like, get out of here. You didn't find that. Not even worth fighting for. And I went, holy cow, it's me. It's me. This is me. Now, let me tell you, man, one of my best, Best, the best advice I ever received in my entire life was given to me by Pastor Jim Reeve. Uh, Faith Community Church was the church I had been attending here in what it was in West Covina, California. And Jim and Marguerite Reeve are still to this day some of our best friends and confidants and counselors. I mean, we go to them, we were there just two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like, 
talk to us. Well, I like to call them my, our parents, our spiritual parents. And we like, we talk, every, we can say anything to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, oh, I said, and you got to understand at this time, 2010, my wife had just left. I call him first. Hmm. I'm like, Pastor Jim. I said, I lost my family, man. I'm a fake. I'm a phony. I'm I'm fake. I'm nothing. You know, the whole fake it till you make it. The problem is you make it and you're still fake. I was a fake. And I said, dude, what am I going to do? And the best advice I ever received, Pastor Jim, I'll never forget. He said, Terry, I cannot promise you that you are going to get your wife and family back. But you need to get better for you. Hmm. Now, Carrie, this was different. Yeah. I was yeah. like, get me get better for me. Like, you gotta understand, my whole life I'd been doing things for Scooby Snacks, for rewards, <laughs> and and to avoid punishment. That hmm. was the only reason to do things. I mean, I learned this back in Church of God in Christ, where you don't do it so you don't get caught. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. That's the lesson that I learned. It was like, the reason you may not want to steal that is because you'll get caught. But what if you wouldn't get caught? Well, you know what yeah, I mean? It's not yeah, like, yeah. it's punishment or all, you do good things for rewards. You, do, you, you put yourself out there so that you can get the reward of everyone thinking you're a great guy and you're so amazing and you're this mm. and you, oh, wait. I would hold the door open for my wife when people were around. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? Like, I know what you mean, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and my wife would call me on it. You big phony. Like, you you just noticed people were there. You're trying to get <laughs> these rewards. And I'm like, hey, well, you know, that's the way it is. <sighs> and I did things what I would call for Scooby Snacks. You that know is what a, I mean? I'm going to uh, hang on to that metaphor. That's beautiful. External motivation versus internal, right? Oh, Scooby snacks. Dude. Scooby snacks. All hmm. external. Just like a puppy. You know? Hmm. And but me get better for me? Wow. Like for real? And I went, that's just like that's all internal. There's no there's no rewards. There's no punishment. There's nothing. It's like just to get better. And wait, dude, it blew my mind. And so I said, okay, okay. And I, I went to this place called Psychological Counseling Services. Now, this is a place where pastors go to when mm -hmm. they fall, where, you know, athletes went to and they get caught up in all kinds of sex scandals and this kind of stuff. So they've seen it all. They've heard it all. You know what I mean? I do. Uh, and I go in there and I'm just like, oh, this is not me. And it's like, you know, it's an intensive where, you know, you you there and you like, you stay there for a whole week and you do nothing but counsel all day long. Because this is the thing, you know, m my wife was like, look, you know, I'm going to have to see something, you know, like you, you can't just tell, there is no, you know, telling me you're going to be better and all this stuff. Like you, it's all action now, buddy. So I'll be over here and you just don't come home. And I was like, oh, all right. All right, I'm I'm gonna do something. I gotta do something. And I but see when I realized that I had been two two different people, I had a double life. Mm. I had this life that everybody saw, and then I had who I was. And I said, I said, I gotta find a way to be one person. So 
I go in there and I'm like, oh, this is messed up. This is not me. And then all of a sudden they said, was your dad an alcoholic? I was like, yeah, how did you know that? I didn't even say anything to you about that. You know? <laughs> and then was your mom religious? I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. How did you know that? I didn't say anything. And wait, they started reading my mail, you know, and this shame thing that was happening and all this stuff and, and the secret keeping and all this. And because they had heard all these people say this stuff before. And I started to see where I was to people. And I was mm. like, this is where this thing is. And then the, the the secrecy was the power of the addiction. Did like because I didn't share, I didn't take inventory, I didn't, I didn't confess, mm. I didn't really talk about it to anyone I that loved me or truly trusted. Like, you know what's so funny is that if if I would have came to my wife when we were married. Early on, right when we got there and told her about all these things I was going through, she would have helped me through it. Mm. I'm sure she would have. Yeah. Considering what my past was and that that I had been exposed to this stuff, she's been like, okay, let's go. Let's go get help together. Let's, I can get you, we can get this through this thing together and we'll pray and we will work. You know what I mean? I do. But I never gave her that opportunity Uh. for 20 years. You know what I mean? Like, she's like, how can I? You you didn't even give me a chance. You know, I didn't even know the real you. Man, let me tell you something. That was a long journey. Yeah. Carrie, the tears, the the angst, the I mean, there were days where I would I couldn't get out of bed. There were days where I was like, everything is different. And, you know, the only way I can really describe it is like you thinking that the the sun revolves around the earth. And you're like, look, the sun, it rises in the east and sets in the west. It goes around us. <laughs> and then you discover painfully, wait a minute, we go around the sun. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know I mean? there had to be a flat earth movement. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Uh-huh. Where you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I keep going, I'll end up in the same place. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like if I just keep going, we're going to go all the way around this thing. I mean, I'm sure. And that, look, that, that kind of thinking takes generations yeah. to get out. You know what I mean? Like generations. In fact, if you even mention that the, uh, that we go around the sun, that people put you in jail. You know what I mean? Mm. That was the reality. And I saw this world was not as it looked. And here I was, super successful, but I had everything backward. The internal Terry Crews was a mess. And I said, oh my God. And I said, I have to reverse this. I have to reverse. And so... What I did because of the secrecy and the whole thing, and, and again, I would never, ever, ever tell people to go public with their issues. Mm. You know, I just wouldn't. Um, I, but I would tell them to always find someone they love, someone they trusted, a counselor, mm. um, someone that they that they really, really know and trust, that they can really talk to about their deepest, deepest innermost problems and difficulties and addictions. Yeah. But for me, because I'd already been in the public eye already, 
I was kind of built for the public eye. I've, I've been in the public eye since I was, you know, a teenager, literally, yeah. you know, um, going into football and being this kind of guy. I said, I have to kill this image. I have to kill this golden calf that I had set up with Terry Crews's face. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I said, man, and I went on, I'll never forget. This was all during, you know, it started internally. It started with telling family members and talking about it. I remember calling up my brother and asking him, Hey man, you grew up in the same house. Did you have these problems? And isn't it, you know, and then it started to go out to wider into friends and people were like, man, that's, I, I, we were going to dinner with people, famous, famous superstars. And I was like, you know, I was addicted to porn and they were like, okay. Woo. <laughs> like, Oh, you, you're talking, you know, I like to call it the awkward stage. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, Carrie, the awkward stage. People were like, all right, I got the check. I'm yeah, yeah, be, yeah, yeah. We're, we're out of here. here. <laughs> Look at the time. We got to go. Yeah. Then, whoa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted to talk about that. Okay. And, uh, but I was, I couldn't stop. Like once, I mean, we talked to the kids. We were mm. with the family, with the kids. This is what's wrong with dad. This is what happened with dad, you know, and I, we, we and we broke it down to a way that they could, you know, understand. But I had kids, you know, of various ages right now, they're from 35 all the way to 16. But this was, you know, 12 years ago. You know what I mean? So there were there were teens all the way down to the little kids. And they were like, so you had a problem, dad? I'm like, yes, I did. Mm. Yes, I did. And it was so hard but as i kept doing it it started to release like the whole thing the power of what that addiction was started to get off me you know Mm. because everybody knew you know and it was accountability and it was people and they were like oh you know and it was like whoa you gotta walk this because you you're talking it now you know what i mean so you better walk and then i said wow i got this early app called facebook live and Facebook Live was, this was back in 2014. And I remember going, I was coming out of the gym and I felt like I got to do this. And I put the Facebook Live on and now people can do lives on Instagram and live, but this is back in the early days. Like, you know, celebrities and people with no one was ever letting anybody into their house or, or talking. And I was in my car outside of the gym and I was like, and it's a, and it's a video you can see even to this day. And it's called Terry Crews, Dirty Little Secret. And I said, hey, I was addicted to pornography and it ruined my life. And the, you and I went into the whole, now my wife and I had already been through years of therapy. Mm. You know, it was probably going on four years up to that point. But, and we had decided to regroup, had decided to come together. And again, with bumps and bruises all the way. And, and it was so great as Jim and Marguerite were there with us the whole time you know, and became our counselors and became our people that we could trust and share how we were feeling. My wife was like, I'm out of here. And Marguerite was like, I understand. <laughs> you know? And Jim, I'll go to Jim like, man, I don't think I can do it. He said, hey, I hear you. I know. But what are you going to do, Terry? Mm-hmm. I said, I know. You know, <laughs> it's so good. So it, listen, again, it's so good. I probably went long with this. Story, no, this but- is this is great. And I mean, you're reading so many people's mails, 
And everything's a little bit different in everyone's life, but there is that really hard pressure. And I think you named it, Terry, that the outside is going great. And you think this justifies or hides or compensates for everything. But on the inside, it's who you are. And, you know, I think you called your book tough. Would you say that up until what you call D-Day, that day that you confessed to your wife, hey, you know, there was a massage parlor and I have this porn addiction and I'm this is the person you married, not what you think you married. You know, tough was defined as you're working out, you're a tough guy, you had an anger problem, you know, you're going to keep people out. But tough is very different for you now. How would you define tough now? What is tough to you in 2022, Terry? Tough now is the ability to really introspectively look at yourself, warts and all, for real, and be brutally honest. It's it's a little like self-surgery, <laughs> you know? Um, there's, a, there's a thing in Rambo when you see where, you know, Stallone has to close up a wound on his own and he's, he's sewing his own skin and he's like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> or he's going to bleed uh-huh. out. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. He knows he's going to die. And so there's the thing where, you know, you look at these things where I've seen stories about people who had their arms caught in things, had uh-huh. to cut their own arm off, you know, but this, that was to save their life. Um, the definition of tough is, is like that. It's where the endurance, the ability to take this kind of pain in order to live, uh-huh in order to have life, in order to, to give life, in order to be life, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, and the other way was, was actually the easy way out. Mm. You know, um, I always looked at that kind of version of toughness was the ability to hold up a shell and keep that shell and let nobody see it. Actually, keeping the image up was considered tough. Mm. Yep. How, how can you keep the image? You know what I mean? And don't let anybody break that image. And the real thing about being tough was tearing that thing down and letting people see you as you truly are. And let me tell you, it, it's it's so relieving being one person now, Carrie. You know, was what happens is the image falls, the double life falls away. And now it's one. And every and what's so wild is that I can go places and people know way more about me than I'll ever know about them. And I do not mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, there we go. Yes, that's it. That's Terry. That's me. What doors has that opened for you? Like with the different kinds of conversations? Because you, I know Stallone is a friend of yours. You have all kinds of friends in Hollywood and and a lot of other people in your life too. So since you've kind of come clean and come out and outed yourself, right? Said, here I am. This is who I am. These are the changes I'm making. Here are the steps I'm taking for a better marriage, to be a better dad, to be a better human, and just to be honest about, about it. Has that triggered conversations with other people who have started a similar journey or, or where 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 are people with your story now? Oh, big time. I mean, first of all, you know, one thing that I did realize, and which was really good, um, is that there were people that I needed to 
separate from. Mm. Um, there were people who liked the image, and it it was better than who I really was. And I lost a lot of friends. You know, I used to have a voicemail that said, "Hey, hi, this is Terry Crews. I'm taking it to the next level, and I'm not going back. Please leave a message." And some people would get angry, I'm like, "Where are you going?" <laughs> and I knew never to call those people back um, because I, I knew I was walking into an entirely new life and the old couldn't come with me. And, you know, the whole th- phrase about the wineskins, oh, yeah. um, you know, old wine, new wineskins, you know, it just doesn't work. You got you got to let that stuff go. <laughs> And I actually had to, there were things like I had to physically, it was almost like spiritually move, <laughs> you know, even though I was still in LA, mm-hmm. I moved, you know, and there were things I didn't do. I had no interest in seeing or going or doing anymore that I, and and before in the day, back in the day in, in the church that I was in, it was always spoke of as like, you know, God say, man, I didn't want that no more. You know, I didn't need that no more. You know, that kind of thing. But this was different. This was different. It was like, wow, I saw the reasoning, the insecurity, the stuff that I was trying to get out of certain things that never fulfilled me. And so I was like, but then once I started to find the things that were fulfilling, the real things that matter the most. I didn't need the other stuff. Wait, once I found what real intimacy was, because this is the thing, I found it. The thing that oh, the thing that touches me the most is my wife found out everything about me. Wait, and we had a thing called disclosure. You have to have, this is part of the technique of improving, of getting rid of addictions, disclosing the things you did every last one of these things as as you can remember them and my wife went through that with me every step of the way and loved me anyway like that's true intimacy mm. you know what i mean like our relationship is now going on 33 years this happened in at our 20 right after our 20th anniversary but now we're going on 33 years in July, and I look at how we're stronger than ever. We put out a book that's on Audible right now called Stronger Together, that uh, if you want to hear her side of the whole story, you can hear it in her voice. Well, listen to that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the whole thing. And it's incredible. It's incredible. And, it, you know, we are an example of a miracle. But that miracle is faith without works. Is dead. Mm. Like you, there's faith and work, and I'm just so thankful, man. Mm. I'm beyond grateful <laughs> that I did get my family back, yeah. that I do have my wife back, and I'll have more than that. You know, it's it's absolutely a new day for me, um, and every day is a new day. And this is why I'm so glad. And I have these conversations, believe you me, man, people pull me to the side. Like, man, how did you do that? You know, big thing, Terry. (laughs) I get that a lot. Uh And I'm like, you know, that's a long story, but (laughs) it probably take about an hour. I would like that about, you know, the the time what we had here, Carrie. Oh, well, you and I have. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone a little past time. You've been very generous. No, no, it's good. I I, want to finish the story and do it right. But I have to say, man, Mm -hmm. um, 
I have heard from people, and what's so wonderful about what this book has been able to do is, you know, because the problem with celebrity is that people feel like you were always so special. Like there was somebody who pulled you out of some, you know, there was a golden spoon and there was this golden bed and silken sheets and you were just, a ra- you know, you they raised you to the sun and said, you know, it's like you are the Lion King. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no. I If you look at my book and you can see the warts and all and you can see, and it's my thing to kill that image so that you can see and let people know, because this is another thing. The 12th step, out of the 12 steps, they find that if you don't do the 12th step, you probably will never get rid of the addiction. And the 12th step is to help others. Mm. That's the 12th step. And this 12th step for me has always been to be revealing, to be transparent, to be vulnerable, to show people what was done to show how I overcame these things and to help shine a light on how to get out of something that I was in for so many, so many years. And to me, this is part of the completion of the 12th step. Yeah. So leaders listening who might be where you were 12 years ago going, you know, she doesn't know everything, or I feel like I'm an imposter. I've got a double life. What advice would you leave them with, Terry? You know, the biggest thing is if you ask yourself that, if you have to ask yourself that question, you probably do. Um, If there's things that your your wife doesn't know, you're going to have to find out how you're going to explain these things or or your husband to the the females out there. And I, I would... I would recommend the presence of a counselor, someone that being a third party, there being someone who's knowledgeable with relationships, knowledgeable with an experience in this, depending on what kind of, uh, or how far you've gone. But I would not recommend you just go home and start spilling your guts and this kind of stuff. I would not do that simply because, you, there are, you can do more damage. Hmm. Um, that's another thing. You know, it's even in the 12 step, they have a phrase where, you know, people want to admit their wrongs to other people, but you can't do that if it will cause them even more pain. You know, um, so you have to be, you have to really, really let someone, and this is, this is why we have each other. You know what I mean? Um, This is, we are, we're not meant, we are social animals. We are not meant to be alone. You're just not. You need, uh, listen, as a married couple needs a ref. (laughs) Uh, You need somebody. We've needed a ref sometimes, Terry. You know what I mean? Look outside and say, Mm -hmm. hey, wait, no, flag on the play, flag on the play. We got, we got to, you know, and this was so crazy and, and, and unbelievable because people will feel like, yeah, you needed all that. Well, you know, my wife had to go to counseling too on mm-hmm. her own mm-hmm. because there was, a, there was some enabling there. There was some of this, you know, it was weird. You know, there was things that she was like, wait a minute, I chose not to see some things, 
You know what I mean? And I was like, well, now, now look, that wasn't for me to say, but that was her. Mm-hmm. That was, those are her words. Mm-hmm. And I, and these, but these things came from her counselor and her person. And this is why we have churches. This is what the purpose of what the church is for. You know what I mean? So we can get through these things together. And I, again, I thank Jim and Marguerite Reeve to this day because, uh, you know, the ability to be able to share our hearts. We, I mean, there were times we would get mad with, with, you know, right there in the counseling room. You know what I mean? And they listened and they understood. And what was so crazy is that it became much more clear when it came out of my mouth. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm going, wow. You know, it wasn't like an answer out of the blue. It's more like, you know, to me, it's, it's never really about answers. It's about asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I like to say, I used to say, why doesn't my wife believe me? But then when everything changed, the question became, why am I lying? That's a better Same question. context, mm. two different perspectives. And it just, once you start asking the right question, why am I lying? Wow. Now we can start getting to the heat and get right into the center of what the issue is. And um, I'm just so thankful for Jim and Marguerite and good people mm-hmm. that believed in us and still do. And I'm thankful. Terry, I want to thank you for being so open and transparent and vulnerable. You're working on America's Got Talent these days, and yes. uh, you got your new book, Tough. And then uh, Rebecca's book is called, is it, what's it called? Stronger, Stronger Together? Stronger Together. Okay, I'm going to have to check that one out. I haven't yeah, that it's one on yet. Audible. It's only on Audible, so it's a, it's a cool. voice book, but it's it's. I'll check it out. Anything else you're working on right now? You've always got like oh, five man. projects on uh, the go. I'm actually in a, a Tales of the Walking Dead, which is a, <laughs> a zombie <laughs> series, which is going to be great. It's coming out this summer. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm acting in that. And, you Are know, you a zombie. Uh, no, no, I, I'm a zombie killer, which is good. Okay. This is well, good. I'm good. like, ah. Yeah, you're built for it. You're built for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, got a lot of things on the on the, you know coming soon that I can't talk about yet, but I'm Understood. so excited about man. Oh, and I also have a Disney ride. I'm I'm in the Guardians of the Galaxy Disney ride, Cosmic Rewind at Walt Disney World. I'm so happy to be a part of this, you oh, know, Americana. Fun. It's just so fascinating, man. So it's you're on a Disney ride. That's pretty cool. I know not a lot of it's people. Like, not a lot of people get to say that, right? Listen, oh yeah, go oh, see man. my ride at Disney. I I am blown away <laughs> with that. This is where, you know, I know for a fact that God has given me more than I could ever ask or think. I mean, mm. we're so, mm. so blessed. And and I know for a fact that because of that change and all that tough work that was done years ago is why I'm able to enjoy this now. Mm. This is mm. a fact. And if people want, obviously, you're online. Do you have a website or anything like that? Or just find you on Wikipedia? All the the socials, at Terry Cruz, um, pretty much on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. It's just at Terry Cruz. Cool. So you can check it out. Terry, this has been fantastic and life-giving. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for letting me talk. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been a great conversation.
Really appreciated Terry's transparency. And we'll have a few very transparent conversations on the podcast over the next few months. Want to thank our partners for this episode. Thank you to He Gets Us Partners. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry and sign up today to help connect with some of the people who are responding to the largest faith campaign in history and by Tithely. So you can get a special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Get a resource that will help you increase generosity at your church by going to increasegenerosity.com. That's increasegenerosity.com. By the way, everything is available in show notes too. You can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 505, where you will find everything we talked about, some highlights, some quotes you can share, and any links to anything that we talked about in this episode. So I've got some great guests coming up. We just booked Malcolm Gladwell for the podcast. Very excited for that. We're going to talk to Jeff Henderson, Stephen M. R. Covey, Ramit Sethi, Chris Bale, Patrick Lencioni, Tim Tebow, and many more over the next few months. So subscribe. You'll get it for free. But coming up next, Brian Tome. He leads Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, and we talk all about what's wrong with online church, what 74 million Americans are looking for in an online church experience, and more. Here's an excerpt. You can increase their reten- the retention rate of them sticking around if you have a service that, one, starts with the message. No worship. Mm-hmm. Forget worship. You don't do as good as Bethel and Hillsong, and if people want that, they're going to go to them, not you. Sorry, sorry to burst your bubble. That's next time on the podcast. And I just want to thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on social. We will repost you as we are able to. And I'm Kerry Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on a lot of other platforms. And my heart is to help you thrive in life and leadership. And if you're feeling a little bit exhausted or you're feeling like you've got some stuff to deal with, here's what I'd love you to do. I'd love for you to get my free burnout assessment. And when you get that, I will also send you a calendar that you can use to plan your life. It's the same one I've used now for, well, probably the better part of a decade. And it's helped over 50,000 leaders get control of their lives. So if you want that, send a text to this number, 833-777-777. 8558. Just text the word THRIVE, T-H-R-I-V-E, to 833-777-8558, and I'll get that to you right away. By the way, because you listen to the end, have you listened to my brand new podcast, The Art of Leadership Daily? It is a very short, five-day-a-week, Monday-to-Friday, 10-minute clip from one of these past episodes. We have over 500 of them. We go back into the archive. Host Joe Terrell will take you through it, and it's a daily dose of leadership. You can do it in 10 minutes or less if you're like me and you listen to your podcast at 1.5 speed. Well, that would make it, what, about six or seven minutes a day? Just a little daily dose of leadership. Would love for you to subscribe and, uh, wow, see if it really helps you lead better every single day. That's what we hope it will do, help you become the leader that others need you to be. So it's called The Art of Leadership Daily. Get it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Check it out there. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the podcast, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.